Hi, I'm Judd Hollander from Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, and you're listening to the True Philadelphia Podcast with Matt O'Donnell. We as a community, a nation, and as a world populace are under an enormous amount of stress. What should bring us a certain level of comfort? The facts, for one, and that is what this podcast is all about. Dr. Judd Hollander is an Associate Dean for Strategic Health Initiatives at the Sidney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, a professor and the Vice Chair of Finance and Healthcare Enterprises in the Department of Emergency Medicine. In sum, Dr. Hollander makes a living by treating people who are sick and finding better ways to treat people who are sick. So consider this podcast episode, Coronavirus 101. The doctor and I sat in his office to discuss what is a coronavirus? What is this coronavirus? Where did it come from? Who is it infecting? And can the world get rid of it? I must warn you, and you will hear Dr. Hollander admit himself, he does not have all of the answers. I think that should bring us comfort, knowing that our medical professionals are not faking it and telling us when they know or don't know something. The basics of the coronavirus, right now on the True Philadelphia podcast. Dr. Judd Hollander, thank you so much for joining us. It is an extremely busy time for you and everyone in the medical profession. Uh, first of all, how long have you been working in medicine? Oh, God, now you're going to make me state my age. <laughs> decades, a, right? D- d- a bunch of decades, right? What's your expertise? Well, I'm an emergency physician. I'm dual boarded in internal medicine and emergency medicine. But right now, my role at Jefferson is running the telemedicine program, uh, coordinating the urgent care centers, and still working as an ER doc. So we are going to try and do the coronavirus 101 as a public service for people. And what I'd like to do is first go simple and then get harder. Okay. Let's talk about what a virus is. A virus you know, most people know is something that's, it has characteristics of being an organism, a living thing, but not all. Explain what a virus is. So I think the easiest way to think about a virus is it's the cold. And people confuse viruses and bacteria, and they're both living organisms, but they're two different types of things. The largest thing for the average person to understand is viruses don't respond to antibiotics, and bacterial infections do, but they could cause, in theory, the same symptoms. So a cold is almost always a virus. Sinusitis is mostly a virus, but sometimes you could get bacterial superinfection. And coughs and bronchitis are actually usually viruses. And so the biggest difference is the approach we take to management. So for both of them, we provide symptomatic support. So if you got a cough, we give you cough suppressants. You got a runny nose, we give you decongestants. If you have more serious conditions, we do what we need to do to stabilize you from that. The, the major, major difference for you and for us treating you is whether or not antibiotics are going to help. Mm-hmm. A virus is ineffective unless it has a host. That's true. It just sort of is out there until it finds one. Right. And for us, it's, you know, we're the host. So if there's no host, we don't worry about the things too much. Coronaviruses. Now, the key word here is corona, crown. Explain what a coronavirus is. So, so a, a coronavirus is a virus that, you know, frankly, hasn't been around for more than 20 years. And, and so, you, you know, in all practical purposes in humans, it first started with SARS, which was an epidemic of a very deadly virus that spread rapidly in certain areas, didn't hit the United States terribly hard. 
And then fortunately, when the weather patterns changed and the seasons changed, it more or less disappeared. What's different about this coronavirus is that its spread is much more rapid and, and it's much more contagious than the common cold. So unfortunately, we all go to work with colds. You know, some people catch the cold. This is as contagious as the cold, but it's considerably more consequential. This coronavirus is called COVID-19. That is the disease that you get, right. correct? And they track it backwards to sometime in late November, early December is when they discovered right. this had jumped into people. Explain what happened in that period. Well, I, you know, on, I'll be honest, I don't know exactly what happened, but supposedly the story is it maybe came from bats and was maybe in a crowded food market. And somehow it made the leap, which usually means something about it is a mutation and it found a way to find a new host. And frankly, if you're a coronavirus, it's done very well with its new host. Mm -hmm. So how does it jump from an animal to a person? Is it consumption of the animal? Can it be contact with an animal? Well, I, you know, in this particular case, I'll be honest, I don't really know, but I, I think it, you know, it may be contact, it may be consumption, but it really is a matter of what, what happens with all of these viruses is they need to find a way into the cells. So it's not like it just gets on your body and causes damage, but it needs to find a particular way into the cells. So in this particular case, it gets in through a receptor that we actually use and has some physiologic, biologic meaning. And so it managed to attach, finds its way in, and then wreaks the damage that it does. In China, they have what are called wet markets. And yes. this is where they sell exotic animals, a lot of them to consume. Right. And they exist because this is how a lot of people in that part of the world eat. Right. And without these, uh, so what do you think about the danger of just having these in, in particular where people can transmit diseases as well? Well, I think, you, you know, people have to live the way people need to live. And so in the United States, we have the FDA, which has its own set of regulations and, you know, make sure that the food that is packaged and is sold to us is from an environment that's safe for us to eat. In other parts of the world, that doesn't really exist. And I think one of the things we may have learned from this is having better food controls makes a difference. It started in Wuhan, and there, th this is something that's come up in terms of all these conspiracy yeah. theories. There is a Wuhan Institute of Virology in, in this very large city in China, and people are jumping to this conclusion that it was something that was made in a lab and it escaped. And I know that you know things that make that impossible. Well, I, you know, Nearly I, impossible. I, I think it's been out there for a period of time, right? I mean, not, not COVID-19, but other viruses like it have been out there. And, and I think you can make up a conspiracy theory for everything. It's almost impossible to disprove something that's not true. Okay. Um, <laughs> if they were making a bioweapon, they would have made something much more effective than this, something that would kill more people, wouldn't you I, say? I, I think that's probably true. I, I think I, I would dismiss the conspiracy theorists, and frankly, I would say it doesn't matter for the average person. This is out there. We need to do what we do to stamp it down. Um, and and I, 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 I don't buy into these conspiracy theories, but it doesn't matter. At this point, we just need to treat the condition and get rid of it, and we have the strategies available for us to do that. Let's keep our eye on the ball. Right, exactly. <laughs> here. Let's talk about how it spread. We know that it, it exists in droplets that someone may cough out or sneeze out, and it does have a shelf life outside of a body, but we're not completely sure what the timing is. Could talk about that. Well, well, so, yeah, so your biggest chance of getting it is to get, so it, 
almost all of these things have a dose response curve. If you're exposed to one virus, probably that's not gonna be anything. If you're exposed to a large droplet that has millions of viruses in it, you're gonna be more likely to get infected. So I think what we really need to do is worry about, and you've heard this with social distancing, staying a couple feet apart from people, making sure that you're not getting sneezed on, coughed on, and not with anybody that has a cold. You need to wash your hands a lot, but I'm touching this surface in front of me. If a virus was put on it five minutes ago, 15 minutes ago, or when you were setting up, you, you know, it's still unlikely that I'm gonna pick it up from that, but the way we make unlikely almost totally impossible mm -hmm. is by washing frequently. I wash my hands right before this interview, just okay. so you know. Okay. I've been very <laughs> careful. Um, how do we prevent these things? And, and these are things that should be in our, our hygiene DNA anyway. It's just the simple washing of the hands and the surfaces, right? 100% it, it, true. And, and I think that we have learned from this, and this is one of these things that's gonna change the way we go in the future. We need to wash our hands more. We need to have hand sanitizer around more. We need to be more careful um, and, and we're much less likely to spread. But the other thing that's gonna change is, we talked about how when you have a cold, when you have, you, 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 you know, you're feeling under the weather, you're, you're more likely to release more viral particles and be more infective. This is the first time I remember people telling doctors, don't work sick, right? All, I, I have colleagues, I've done it myself, I've worked when I've had IVs in, I've worked when I've had horrible flus 10, 15 years ago when I was younger and could tolerate that, and we all do that. And now we have learned that there's a value to being home when you're sick, and the value is that you don't spread this. So I think we hear a ton about social distancing, that is probably the most critical thing we can do. And I, you know, I assume we'll get into whether we're locking down or where we're going, but I, I think those are viable strategies that we need to be more willing to embrace. People have always respected those who play hurt, or go to work and get right. things out. That is something that probably needs to change in our society. Uh, you, you could play hurt and go to work, and you're gonna actually kill people. And, and at least for those of us in medicine, that's not why we're here. And I think the same as everybody else. You know, you want to be with your family now, and I've actually had real issues in my family now where my son and his girlfriend were supposed to have a party with four friends and 150 other friends that they don't share the birthday with coming to town. This was last Saturday. The debate ensuing about whether or not they have the party last Tuesday before we're in the state we're in now was really kind of impressive. Thankfully, they canceled the party and everybody's well. And have a family sweet 16 next weekend, and the place wasn't releasing the money and my sister wasn't gonna be able to get the money back for her sweet 16. They ultimately changed their mind yesterday after the governor locked down in New York State. But, but these are real issues, and, and it is, we believe, we believe we're invincible, particularly when we're young, right? We believe we're invincible. And now you need to think about people who aren't you, because you might be a 20-year-old with a very low mortality and be able to believe you're invincible and that if something happens to you, the mortality is a fraction of 1% and roll the dice but then you go visit your parents on the weekend and they're 80 and you bring your grandbaby. And all of a sudden, if that person, grandpa, grandma gets the disease, the mortality can be close to 20%. So we really need to be much more cognizant about the impact we as individuals have on everybody else around us. We know the infection rate is much higher with older people. Uh, their immune systems are different. We also know that with this coronavirus, young people don't seem to get it, children. Yeah. Why is that? I don't think we know why that is, but I think that's probably the secret. We have to figure out what's different about the young people than the people who are getting it. It may well be there's something that exists in their body, some kind of antiviral protein or, or something 
that if we could figure out what it is, that's the trick to treating the older people. I've heard that, it, and this is a, just a, a hypothesis, that it is because young people's immune system tend to not over attack the body in trying to prevent an illness or a disease or an infection. We're gonna find out. <laughs> We're gonna find out. And if that was the case, then one might think immunosuppressives would have a better efficacy in the elderly, right? Because we can suppress immune systems, but there's no evidence from the people treated in China that giving steroids or giving other things to suppress the immune system are, are making a life-saving uh, difference. So I, I think time will tell. Okay. So we think it came from a bat and jumped somehow to a person. Can people give their pets the coronavirus or vice versa? I guess they could give it to their bats. <laughs> but but I, I think we know, you know, pretty well on pretty good evidence that they're not likely to transmit it to a dog. I was recently with a veterinarian that had done research on this and said, you probably still should, if you can, social distance from your dog. If you have a friend that could take the dog, if you have COVID, you probably should do that. But as far as they know, there's no risk to the household animals. And, and why is it just they have different, you know, responses to the things, they're, they're made up differently, they're, they're different species. Yeah, it's, it's a biologic makeup. And that's why, you know, bats probably had this for a long time and we never got it till recently. It, it, it takes something to change to have it jump species. And fortunately for dogs, that hasn't happened yet. Are you big with percentages with this? Because I know the data, it's hard to, to, to denounce things or to, to uh, infute things because we don't know how many people exactly are infected worldwide or in this country, but I'm hearing 80% of the people who get the coronavirus have some sort of symptoms. Is that yeah, so there's fair a bunch. So, so we don't honestly know that. I mean, what, the, the numbers that I like to talk about, which are the numbers that you, you, know, you hear a lot from, from other experts, are that of people who get it, 80% are gonna be kind of just fine, very mild symptoms, not need to be in the hospital. 20% will be in the hospital, and of that 20%, 5% or a quarter of them will require some kind of real critical care things. The, the numbers that I hear debated most and I have trouble getting my hands around are, we know there's a ton more people that have coronavirus who are well. So the numerator we figure out, we find the sick people. The denominator, who else has it walking around, we don't know. And we do know that there's asymptomatic carriage. So the question for me is, what is the right denominator? Is the denominator people who are sick who would get a test? Because when we look at flu, we're looking at people who are sick who get a test. We don't randomly walk around, stop you in the street, swab your nose, and say you have the flu. So I think the people that say, well, everybody has it, so the mortality is really low, are underestimating the impact of the disease. On the other hand, I think the real denominator probably lives between the testing everybody and the so few tests we're doing, and probably is testing symptomatic treat people who would otherwise visit the doctor to get a test. What do you suspect the death rate is? I, higher than the flu, So it's, it's gonna, probably I, most agree. Yeah, I think I'd agree it's higher than the flu. I think, you know, the numbers often quoted are two to three percent. It's really hard to tell because we don't have enough recovery numbers to see people get totally better. And the flu is 0.6 percent? 0.1 percent. 0.1 And so, you know, I guess this is gonna be in the one to one and a half percent range. And, and I put this in perspective for my family, that's the same as a bypass, right? But a bypass is somebody who's got a sick heart and they're getting a bypass. This is a healthy person walking around and all of a sudden they have the same mortality in the next couple of weeks as someone who's gonna get a bypass. So 1% sounds little, saying 98 or 99% sounds fine. It makes it really reassuring. But 
I've been in a lot of rooms with 100 people. I don't want to think that sure. one of them's not going home. Sure. So those are the two most concerning things and the biggest difference between the mm -hmm. coronavirus and the flu, the seasonal flu, right. is the uh, death rate much higher and also the infection rate much higher. True. That, and that's what makes this scary. You, you know, people tolerate a cold. You feel miserable for a couple of days. You get better. Nobody's dying from a cold or pretty, pretty much nobody's dying from a cold. But here it is, something that spreads as easily as the cold and is more deadly than the flu. I, I think we do have the appropriate level of concern out there right now. Could this become a seasonal disease, COVID-19? Oh, people smarter than me could guess in either direction. So I, I like to say the biggest thing we're going to learn about COVID is we're going to know what it is. So I suppose anything can. And honestly, I'm not smart enough to know the answer to that. So I'm going to take a wait and see approach. Mm -hmm. And that's, like you said, all the professionals working on this, they want to see what it does in the summer. Right. That, that's the big tell, right? Because the right. flu dies off in the summer. Right. does this. So I've seen a couple pieces of data, and I don't know how to interpret them. I saw a piece of data from an unpublished study, so it hasn't been through peer review, that suggested as this has spread from, you know, China to the, you know, to the U.S. and Far East to West, that most of the countries that had a large epicenter were between 5 and 11 degrees centigrade at the time and had a humidity. I forget the exact... Put that in Fahrenheit for people. Uh, it's... Uh, like uh, 40... Five yeah. fifty degrees. Yeah. yeah, the temperature we're at now, actually, sure, right? Sure. And, and you that, know, so that's a tell right there. Right. So that that would suggest, okay, there's a comfort level, and then the severe part of the disease, once it spikes, has been you know four to eight weeks in most places, and at that point the temperature's gotten warmer. So that's a comforting thing. But as one of you know my very smart colleagues says, it's in the southern hemisphere now, and it's in their summer, so I wouldn't take too much comfort in that. So it, again, it's going to be one of these things that I hope that's what happens. And, and I want to read that article and say, yeah, that's right. We're mm -hmm. not going to worry about it. But, you know, Australia has an outbreak in their summer and there's stuff in South America and down at the equator. So it, it, there will probably not go away magically. We're doing this to try and inform people. And I don't want to scare people, but could you talk about a worst case scenario? And then we'll talk about the best case after that. Well, the, the worst case scenario is people don't heed the warnings and they go out and they're out in bars and, you know, they're out other places and sitting two feet apart and coughing on each other and it's going to spread. And lots and lots of people will get infected and the mortality for the people at risk will probably be really significant. Uh, you know, China's got a huge population. They have, you know, you know I, I don't see today's number, but maybe 100,000 cases. It's not millions and millions of people. So I'm hopeful that we have more knowledge than they did when there was an outbreak. And hopefully we could keep that number in the single digit number of thousands. And along with the worst case is the possibility that this becomes seasonal like the flu and it's something we have to deal with every year and it can change slightly and the vaccine that maybe comes right. out doesn't work as well. Right, but you know, the, the, the only thing I think I could say for sure is that right now there's, as you know, because we're discussing it, there's tremendous uncertainty. Mm -hmm. I, I think six months from now we'll have tremendous certainty. And then we'll have to deal with that certainty and do what we can to, you, you know, take the learnings and make next coronavirus season, if there is one, much less impactful. Best case scenario, we beat this somehow. Yeah. What, yeah. what would beating this be? So I think beating this is that the world is now smart enough to know that even though it's horrible, to have to stay inside continuously for two, three, four weeks. It's pretty much what we need to do. 
And if we can social distance ourselves and find ways to, you know, watch TV, play games, maybe actually talk to each other and get our faces out of the iPhones, you know, we might actually be able to stamp this thing out and stop spread. It needs you to give it to me or me to give it to you. If we're not close to each other, um, that won't happen. There's actually just on Twitter, and I don't know who posted it, there's a great thing with a series of matches. I don't know if anybody's seen that. It's, it's a bunch of matches lined up, and they light the first one, and the fire spreads. And then they do it with social distancing, and they pull one match out of the line, and the fire can no longer spread because it can't make the leap. That's what we're doing. I think that's a great analogy for this. Yeah, a visual aid. It's wonderful. So it is St. Patrick's Day. Let's go back one month to February 17th. What do you wish we would have done back then if you had a time machine and could tell people where this disease is on March 17th? I wish we could have, and this is really hard, so I'm not critical of anybody for it, but, but I wish we could have enacted all the things we've enacted now. And I've said on, you know, in discussions over maybe two weeks ago uh, that at some point we're going to be staying home and we're going to be more or less on lockdown. The only question for us whether it's going to be voluntary now before tens or hundreds of thousands of people get it or it's going to be involuntary after everybody has it. I think we kind of found the sweet spot. We, we, once we decided this was real on, on a national or state level, people acted swiftly. It took us maybe a little longer to decide it was real. On the other hand, if we acted sooner, everybody would thought we were worrying too much and restricted activities and we wouldn't have the learnings we have. But I think right now, uh, the amount of cautions that are out there are, are probably going to help us get on top of this. Doctor, how is this going to change us in the long term? Um, I think it's going to make us more flexible uh, to take advice. I think it's going to actually make us bond with our families. And I think it's going to make us rally together. People are going to have a new time at home. And, and you know, I, I, I watch a lot of stuff on the blogs, and, and all of a sudden people have this great respect for teachers who have been dealing with your kids all day. And now that you're dealing with your kids all day, <laughs> and you've got to be inside with them the whole time, you get to see what people are doing. So I think it's actually going to give us a broader appreciation for each other. How about telemedicine? This is something that you are deeply involved yeah. in. Uh, how much has changed already? Oh, my and, and explain God. Telemedicine oh, my God. So, so, as a refresher. So, so telemedicine is effectively Skype or FaceTime between the patient and the doctor, or sometimes between two doctors with a patient in the middle deciding what to do. And, and I, I, I th so that's the easiest way to explain it. We have done telemedicine here at Jefferson for about five years in a variety of different ways. And I'll, I'll give you actual numbers uh, effective kind of today, or at least ballpark. We have an on-demand, direct-to-consumer telemedicine app called Jeff Connect, which is, you know, used widely within our enterprise and the community here. And we used to have one doctor who would be on call at a time all day. And that one doctor would want to work that shift because it was kind of leisurely and they weren't working that hard and they were taking care of people and people were really happy and satisfied. Uh, today, last time I looked at noon, we had 15 different doctors on that platform and they were all working their butts off. Uh, I mean, it's so busy. We have... Uh, at least yesterday, the numbers were a 20-fold increase over our baseline, a and today might be more than that. that. That's one form of telemedicine. You just go, you download the Jeff Connect app, you any time of day or night can do a visit. We're doing a lot of COVID screens, and we normally take care of a lot of coughs, colds, bronchitis, so it's things that may or may not be COVID at baseline. 
The, the other thing that we're trying to do is we're trying to distance our providers from patients that roll into the emergency department because we really don't want a limited set of resources, you know, really good critical care people to all get COVID and nobody be there when somebody comes in sick. So if you come into the emergency department and we could put an iPad in your room and an iPad with the providers outside, somebody needs to go in the room with you, but maybe we could restrict that to one person rather than 10 and then follow you through the hospital that way. But what I actually think is most important, which is what few other people are thinking of, is we wanna take care of you the rest of the time. So if you're a 70 year old with diabetes, I don't want you to get on the train and come here. So we wanna take care of all of our normal patients, all of our established patients and be able to provide care. So we have switched the in-person appointments to telemedicine appointments, and these are real numbers. Last week we would do 40 to 60 telemedicine visits with established patients a day. On Monday, we had 231 scheduled, which doesn't seem that huge, but by the time we finished Monday, we did close to 600. And by the time we finished Monday, we had 500 scheduled for today, and today we'll do over 1,000. So when appropriate, it is efficient medicine, so, bottom line. So I like to say telemedicine's not medicine. It's just a care delivery mechanism. So whether or not you get good medicine determines whether you get a good doctor or a good nurse practitioner or a good PA. And it's just a way to deliver care. So I'm an ER doc. When you come into my emergency department, sometimes I can't take care of you. I need a consultation. I need a CAT scan. I need an x-ray. I need to coordinate the care and get test results. When I see you on telemedicine, three quarters of the time I could totally take care of you. The other quarter of the time I need help. It might be an in-person exam. It might actually be an x-ray, it might be a lab test, it might be a specialist. It's me practicing medicine, I'm just practicing it with a lens between me rather than nothing between me and you. And so that's something people don't understand. Telemedicine isn't medicine. There's a cardiologist and they're doing telemedicine. There's a pulmonologist and they're doing telemedicine. And I semi-jokingly say, um, no one says I'm going to my third florist, right? The third floor is the pulmonary people. Right? You, 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 so you're not going to telemedicine, you're just seeing your doctor on telemedicine. How about public gatherings? Is this something that maybe our society needs to think about and reassess? I, I think we need to reassess when we tone it down. So I think public gatherings are great. You know, I love big parties. And, and so we shouldn't do away with them altogether. But when we have a pandemic and an infection, absolutely. I mean, and again, it's not just I don't get to roll the dice for me. I can't go to a party of 150 people and say, I'll take my risk, this is important to me, because I'm gonna come back and then I'm gonna meet with you. And then I'm gonna meet with some elderly patient. And so I should not get to determine who lives or dies, and, or who gets sick and doesn't get sick. And so I you know, really should just stay home during this until we quell it, because otherwise it's gonna last a long time. Are we, as a species, in an ongoing battle with viruses and are there battles to be won and lost and, and a war to be won or lost in the long run? Well, Is that a, the right or wrong, wrong way to look at no, it? No, I think that's fair. You know, we didn't have penicillin 100 years ago. And, and then people were dying from sepsis all the time, which is bacterial infections. But then we have penicillin and now we have, you know, tons of antibiotics and, and we can treat bacterial infections. But the bugs aren't as stupid as we think, right? They become resistant and then we need new antibiotics. We've never had, for most things, great antivirals. And so we start seeing things like West Nile virus and these other viruses that we've not figured out. 
and we need to put the appropriate resources from the federal government, from the pharmaceutical industry, in, into figuring out how do we treat these things. And I think mostly we've done really well with vaccines and getting on top of it, but right now I suspect we're going to have a lot of antivirals being developed. Sure. What are you most hopeful about, Doctor? I, I am most hopeful that it looks like everybody is now doing the right thing. And I am most hopeful that people are placing the health of society and the good of the community above their own self-centered interests. And just coming into work, there's no traffic, there's no people on the streets. People are doing the right thing, and it's hard. It's really hard to do the right thing, but you have to believe that you're having a self-sacrifice for the good of the community, and I think people are doing that. Dr. Judd Hollander of Jefferson University Hospital will do a little yeah, coronavirus. Thank you. thank you for joining me on the True Philadelphia podcast. Very All right. informative. All right. Thank you for having thank me. Thank you, Doctor. Thanks to Dr. Judd Hollander. What a crazy and busy time for him. On a side note, I must say it was eerie driving to and from Center City, Philadelphia during rush hour on a Tuesday to conduct this interview. The traffic was possibly the lightest I've experienced in decades. Parking lots were empty. There weren't any crowds. One of the largest cities in the country resembled a ghost town. Already, it seems, our level of commitment to stop the rise of infections is making a difference. I'm Matt O'Donnell, and this is the True Philadelphia Podcast. Podcast.